I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking with Kyle Mackey, who is the North Idaho field representative for the Idaho Wildlife Federation. We're talking with him about Idaho HB 469, a bill that's waiting to go to committee in Idaho and how it could change and set a precedent for changes for muzzleloader seasons in Idaho. Full disclosure, a representative from the Idaho Wildlife Federation reached out to inform me about this change. They have their opinion about this bill as it heads into committee. But I do my best to ask some questions from both sides. And as of recording, I am working on connecting with the committee chair to get his side of this story and why he thinks this bill should pass. My name is Kyle Mackey. I am the North Idaho field rep for the Idaho Wildlife Federation. Live in Northern Idaho, Potlatch. I don't know if Probably not real familiar with the layout of Idaho, but kind of where it narrows down into the the, the narrow northern part. I'm at kind of the southern edge of that. So. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> um, I grew up Upper Peninsula, Michigan, just always outside hunting, fishing, trapping, doing the whole, doing it all. And yeah, we made the move out here, I don't know, eight or so years ago and just taking advantage of everything Idaho has to offer when it comes to outdoor stuff. That's fantastic. So what about the Idaho Wildlife Federation? What does it do and, and how does that relate to kind of this conversation that we're having here? Yeah, so Idaho Wildlife Federation, it's a it's a nonprofit sportsman org. Uh started up, I believe, in 1936. And then a couple of years after that, 1938, kind of helped pass the first uh citizens, the voter initiative to form an independent fish game commission to kind of take that. Um, wildlife season policy setting stuff from the legislature and go to a science-based uh, end of things and, you know, manage it through best best available science rather than the uh, the desires of politicians and the people that fund their stuff. Right. So does the Wildlife Federation work alongside the Idaho Fish and Game? We, we are completely separate uh, okay. 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we do work with fishing game on on certain things. Um, work adjacent to them. Sometimes we input on things that we don't think is the way things should be managed, and we'll we'll give that to them. But we we have a very good working relationship with them, but very much separate. That's good to know. So you guys make your voices heard on on issues that you see affecting sportsmen and and how you would like the seasons and the game populations to be managed based on that scientific look at it. Exactly. Yep. Do you personally hunt with a muzzleloader? Yeah, I, it's more, for me, it's more of an opportunity thing. I am yeah. not a, um, I would not call myself a muzzleloader, muzzleloader, but I do it. I mean, it's, it's always been just that little extra opportunity. Didn't grow up doing it. That's okay. Maybe hunted a couple times, you know, a handful of days here and there. And then out here now we have we have some unique unique opportunities for muzzleloading out here. Some of our elk, our elk zones, they have additional muzzleloading opportunity after whatever the like some of the stuff I hunt. There's a primarily an archery season, and then there's kind of a supplemental, oftentimes cow hunts later on in the year. Okay, if you didn't fill your tag, so I take advantage of that. Shot a shot a cow with muzzleloader doing that two years ago. I had a, a muzzleloader elk tag and shot a I shot a nice six point bull with that. And, yeah, it's it's always just that uh, taking advantage of every opportunity I can. I'm I like hunting, whether it's a muzzleloader, rifle, bow. If there was a special spear season, I'd probably take advantage of that if I could. <laughs> we could see that, man. I'm seeing that a lot more of that on Instagram right now. Those guys get mm -hmm. good at throwing those. <laughs> <laughs> I got contacted by somebody else on your team about Idaho HB 469. 
last week. Could you tell the listeners and the viewers about that and what brought it to your attention at the Idaho Wildlife Federation here? HB 469, it's it's in response to a a rule that the fishing game, Idaho Department of Fishing Game, they submitted to the legislature. So some of our fishing game rules have to go through the rulemaking process and then be approved by the legislature. It all started last year um, due to just hearing from different sportsmen. They wanted they wanted some changes to what we could could use for for muzzleloading bullets. Idaho is pretty restrictive. We we have to use loose powder. We cannot use two and I primers. So we either have to use percussion caps, musket caps, flint, flintlock, um, and our we no scopes. So only iron sights. You can just peep sights. Yeah. And the bullets, the the wording was previously uh, had to be. I don't have the exact word, but it had to be composed. I think it's wholly of lead or lead out. Yeah. Some people were, com- or talking about just being frustrated with their lack of options from some people i heard i don't know i think that's kind of a a stretch but i get it you you roll into a sporting goods store the day before season like so many people unfortunately do and you you don't have a whole lot when it comes to just lead bullets and then also some people are talking they they wanted the option to be able to shoot like an all-copper bullet for for health reasons and want being worried about lead in meat. So I, I get the reasoning. So fishing game went through the rulemaking process. They took, took input from sportsmen. Um, I believe it was something like 75% of sportsmen approved of this rule change, which all it did was go from a bullet need to be comprised wholly of lead or lead alloy to allowing just a, a bullet it it didn't matter if there's copper involved and then also it it made some just little allowances for what they call pressure bases or accuracy tips so right. basically a tip bullet and a, a pressure base on the bottom with similar like a power belt or something to that effect yeah some kind so of gas went, seal at the base exactly so they went through that a lot of public support and there that being said there there were definitely people opposed to it who wanted to keep that that traditional Keep it as traditional as possible. Right. But the vast majority wanted that change or were at least okay with that change. So after all of that, we're talking almost a year to the process now. It our uh legislature is now in session and this has to come before legislature to get approved. And there was some opposition from one of the one of the members on the um House Resources and Conservation Committee and Basically, he he is a Muslim hunter, and he he voices opinion in some of the public's public meetings and whatnot that he wanted sabots and two on or two and nine primers, peltized powder, all that allowed. So basically, it kind of got held up in committee, and then as a result of that, he brought forward this this HB uh, four sixty nine to kind of amend what fishing game was putting forward and basically get uh pelletized powder 209s um and sabots allowed so that's kind of the the roundabout way of how we how we got to where we are right so last fall i I was written by uh, just a sportsman in idaho about that proposed rule change and there was a lot of i I produced a video about it It was a lot of interesting comments and discussion going on there because that uh, that original proposed rule change 
back last fall, I believe, was solely focused on the material the bullets were made out of. It did not expand into sabots, but it did allow things, I, I believe, uh, things like the pressure bases that you see on things like uh, the Power Belt bullets and the Hornady ELDX bullet that came out last year, where it had that pressure base. So that, that proposed rule change went before the legislature, and this HB 469 is coming in then, correct me if I'm wrong, and proposing an expansion on those proposed changes and deciding that via the legislature, not via the fish and game. Is that correct? Yeah, and then, yeah, for, for the most part, there was, so there were a few public meetings also around that time regarding okay. this, and they they did talk about before previous to some of those meetings that they they were scoping for just the bullets themselves but they also received comments about sabots 209s etc and they they basically said they're, they're taking all comments into account so while they weren't specifically scoping for it there was there was a mention of it and the um, they had there's about 475 comments they got from folks and only about nine percent of them spoke positively about wanting to see a change to 209s and okay. sabots so yeah they, they they didn't they weren't specifically scoping that yet they did see a little support for it but not a whole lot i mean less than 10 percent. so okay. if they were scoping specifically for it the support look i i would guess probably would have been a little higher but still i would guess below <laughs> below the majority okay so they it sounds like there was kind of a, a taking a, a, of the temperature, we'll say, of muzzleloading enthusiasts and muzzleloading hunters in Idaho to see how they were feeling in a contemporary sense. Because I, it, based on my understanding of these wildlife departments, there's kind of a balance between what the sportsmen and hunters are looking for in contrast or in line with the populations of game and the seasons and the in the wildlife. I mean, that's that's the management part of it is is balancing those two sides of the coin, in my opinion. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and that's the problem. The more the more advancements these need technology, whether it's archery, long range rifle, muzzle loading, as you get more effective, you can all there's only a couple levers you can pull. You're either restricting tags or you're shortening seasons. So right. And that's uh, that's the job that, that has to be done. I mean, that's conservation at its base levels, pulling those levers to make sure that you're you're balancing that. So what's the IDWF stance then on this HB 469 to be fully transparent about it? Yeah. So our stance, we uh it, it's kind of complicated because we are we are definitely strongly opposing this change. Our our view is these type of rule changes should not be done in a state house these should be done through science they should be involved in more of a public process through fish game through the fish game commission if this all went before went through the in our opinion the proper the proper avenues of the the public scoping process i mean all that we likely would not be taking a position on it but going this way, this is this is one person essentially deciding, I don't want this, I want this changed, and not involving the, the public. And some of the wording in the bill itself, it also talks about the inability for fishing game to restrict the use of 209s, sabots, and all that. So it's not even allowing, there's no allowance in there for fishing game hmm. to, oh, we're too this is too effective. We we can no longer allow these 
these sorts of technologies for muzzleloaders, it's, it, in our opinion, it is just not the proper way to do fishing game management at all. So we're strongly opposed to it. So it sounds like it's kind of on a technicality, you might say, uh, bypassing the way that these kinds of rule changes have been done in the past and taking it taking it outside of the process and and dictating the process rather than going along with the process and making sure that it all lines up with that balancing act of the fishing game departments. Yeah, I, I would think I say I think that's uh, definitely the right way to say it. Okay. Um, that being said, the re- some of the other reasons we are opposed is talking with folks at fishing game and just knowing knowing how these different technologies can affect your effectiveness with hunting. It's like these will, while it's not, we're not uh, allowing scopes or anything, there's the potential for this to increase the effectiveness. And we don't want to see our opportunities restricted further. We want to have as much opportunity as possible. So while we're opposing it on from the technical aspect of how it's happening, a lot of that is also tied back to what this change will will do for the potential of hunting, muzzleload hunting in the state. Right. It was and correct me if I'm wrong again, but when you have a a rule change like this that could go through legislatively, there might not be as much scientific research going into it to test and poll and and figure out, you know, possible outcomes of that kind of opening up of the possible effectiveness of the arm that's being used. It's just kind of, here's what we want to do, go do it, rather than saying, how is this going to affect things for the game and the system in general? That's exactly right. Because we just, this was read in committee. No one really knew what it was. It came up. Now it's been printed. And now we're just sitting here waiting for for this bill to be brought before that committee again. Mm. And... we might get a, a one or two day notice when it's on the agenda and people can sign up to testify. You get your two or three minutes. And once it's, if it makes it out of committee, that, that's all the, that's, that's the, the rigorous uh, debate that will happen before it gets brought to the, the whole house. And then if it passed the house onto the Senate side. So it's, it's a pretty expedited process, but not a ton of, opportunity for public comment on it okay oh, much less review of scientific literature right. or whatnot on it so right so i've i've read a little bit about this and again i'm not in idaho so i'm just kind of finding what information is available to me uh, and i'm finding uh, i think it's the idaho freedom foundation uh, i could be wrong is supporting this because of it's it's opening up and uh letting go of restrictions of sportsmen and hunter rights in Idaho where you're seeing a, a decrease in restricting of freedom. What, what kind of, what would you say to folks out there that say this doesn't stop you from hunting with a traditional muzzleloader? It doesn't mean that you can't, you know, hunt the hard way it's opening it up and, and making things less restrictive for sportsmen across the board who see that as a good thing. I mean, if we want to make things less restrictive, why have archery or muzzleloader seasons? I mean, right. th- those are in place to increase opportunity without hurting the, the animal populations. If we're worried about just having ultimate freedom on everything, let's just have a year-round rifle season, if that's what we really want. But that's not responsible. 
Right. No, it's, it's a bit extreme to, to put it that way, but it's it's kind of true. right. It's you know, it is kind of the story of the the camel under the tent, camel's nose under the tent. You know, here in Indiana, we have a very open muzzleloader season. Uh, you know, it's but that that doesn't stop people. You know, hunting with a flintlock and, and a percussion, you know, side lock like I do a lot. But I know a lot of folks who hunt with an inline muzzleloader and, and enjoy it just as much as they do uh, with their rifle season. I'm I'm more interested in how and why these things happen, uh, you know, because I find it really fascinating. And, and across the country here with these muzzleloader season rule changes, we're getting more and more into these technicalities of the process, of the rulemaking process and of how the fish and wildlife departments work. And we're seeing these kind of changes happen because of the rulemaking process or how that func that system functions over how many of us might feel or might hope that it would function. And that's that's why I appreciate answering that question because I know it wasn't, you know, you're not necessarily trying to sway people's opinion on it because it, it's not up to the public at this point. You know, it's in this kind of legislative process for right now. But we're seeing this happen across the country where these changes are happening this with the system separate from how we might think that it should should behave. So I, yeah. I do appreciate that. I mean, that. that's the that's the unique thing about out here where we some of our different rules. Like you, you can still use any type of muzzleloader you want. You could use it in the the rifle season if you want. So those those technologies that are in this specific legislation are already available to use. Then we also have um what what we call a, a short range weapon hunts. So sometimes they're within certain boundaries and maybe for safety reasons. Um, mm -hmm. They don't want people shooting rifles or in within certain areas or just certain hunts. They have decided to to have these short range weapons, which you can use any type of muzzleloader. You can use a scope muzzleloader. You can use a shotgun with slugs, a crossbow. Like so, there there is already a space for these for these advanced uh, muzzleloaders. But yeah. I, me personally, I don't think they have a place in muzzleloading, period. Yeah. In well, in these type of more, uh, I guess, historic type seasons, tradition, traditional seasons. So along those lines, you know, my next question is, you know, based on your understanding, would this bill prevent a strictly primitive muzzleloading season from being enacted in Idaho? Because right now, based on what I've read, Idaho doesn't have any language around their rules about it being primitive or traditional or historical. There's not really any mention of that. The arms themselves in the current rule structure are just kind of locked into that, you know, the the more primitive style ignition systems, but it doesn't say anywhere that it needs to be that. So if this passes, could, could Idaho ever have a traditional or historic muzzleloading season like we just saw implemented in Montana a couple of years ago? I mean, I, I think we could, but it would then have to go through the the legislative process again. Okay. Um, even if this bill doesn't go through to to go back to call it more of like like the heritage season that Montana implemented, it would still have to be the, the same process that was done for the change of bullet composition for fishing game. They would have to scope it to the public. They'd have to get approval from the fishing commission and then bring it before the legislature and have them approve it as well. I mean, I, that that was my primary concern, really, reading this. It, the, the way the wording was done, it seemed like the Fish and Game Department wouldn't be able to, in the future, restrict those items from a season. And 
we're seeing increased interest in that opportunity of a traditional historical season or heritage season. And I hope that Idaho doesn't miss out on the chance to do that. But it sounds like from the from what you're saying here that that could be, you know, offered as not necessarily a legal amendment, but, a, a you know, just speaking here, an amendment to that, allowing that kind of re more restrictive season in the future. If that yeah, was. I think it'd be much more difficult if this okay. if this bill passes to do that. Okay. Um, but it, I get technically, like I said, it, it could still happen, but not not with this rule in place if it does pass. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's <laughs> and that's just my take on it. I I may be right. off on that. I am a I'm not the guy, the lobbyist down the state house. That that's my <laughs> boss, and uh, he can he can have that. Uh, right. Yeah, I have no interest in that. <laughs> Do you think there's anything behind this flurry of of rule change proposals, or is this just kind of a cyclical part of the wildlife management process here in Idaho? We've seen a lot of changes around the country here lately in the past few years, and I'm just wondering if there's um, any particular pressure that you are seeing or feeling in Idaho steering towards this, uh, you know, this kind of opening up of the muzzleloader season. I think it really came from just fishing game hearing hearing from the sporting public that some folks wanted to see that that bullet change initially, mm -hmm. and then once they opened that can of worms, it just kind of uh, happened. Right. <laughs> um, Can't put it yeah, back. In. If that wasn't brought up before, I we might not be here talking about this today. So I think that was kind of a result of an unfortunate result of fishing game, the fishing game commission doing what they're supposed to be doing and hearing from. The sportsmen of the state and exploring different possibilities and then it just kind of got snowballing and it rolled into where we are now and it's it's kind of a shame looking at where some of the other states are going you look at like utah just restricting um scope muzzleloaders and these other states are stepping back their their regulations for for muzzleloading and making it more restrictive and then here we are allowing for potentially allowing for uh for newer technologies so i yeah, it, it's interesting where we are now. We have so many people who just care about hunting, fishing, wildlife, all this. Now we have so many, and it's great to see all these people getting into it and the just more interest in it. But then at the same time, you have a, a limited resource. So you got to balance that, the opportunities, the, the technologies available. And it's it's a tough job. I, I don't envy the <laughs> fishing game agencies throughout the, sta the states. Yeah. Is Idaho feeling pressure from the popularity increase of Western big game hunting of both in and out of state tags, or is it stayed pretty stable over the past few years? That's uh are we starting a whole new podcast here? That could be a whole no, no. series. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's something that came no, to my mind as we were talking. <laughs> no, it's a great question because we hear that a lot. We have we just had some some changes two or three years ago now with how we allocate our elk and deer tags and it made it for for, for non-residents it changed now you have to buy a unit specific tag for a deer or a elk zone specific so before you could just buy there was a number of kind of over-the-counter opportunities for non-residents and you there we we have been restricted for quite a while as far as the numbers um I, I don't know how long, 30, 40, I don't know how long the numbers have been there, but it's it's always about, I guess, 13,000 or so non-resident elk tags 
and about 15,000 non-resident deer tags. Those numbers have been capped for a long time. But once they they changed the rules, so you had to, not only were they capped, but they were capped by specific zone and, and then even onto the unit basis. That created kind of a flurry um, of non-residents wanting to ensure that they got a tag where they wanted to. Okay. So okay. our tags are selling out very quickly for non-residents. We have a, a December 1st sale for non-resident deer and elk tags. And I think they were all sold out within, I don't know, 12 hours or something this year. So wow. it's a little crazy. So our, yeah. so that's one end of it. That being said, our non-resident numbers aren't changing. They've been stable because they've been capped. What we do have is a ton of people moving into the state. Mm. So a lot more resident hunters as well. And there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure on the wildlife that being said there's still plenty of opportunity for people to get out get the experience they want i mean if you want to go into some of those areas that are highly sought after and have a lot of game great but you're probably going to deal with other people or you can go for that backcountry experience where there's not as many um deer and elk running around and get that 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 feeling that i like that adventure that you just don't know what you're going to run into and you frankly don't know if you're going to run into anything you you can shoot or not so it's right there's plenty of opportunity for everyone out there i guess yeah well that, that's good to hear because it's i think that's part of the ongoing discussion especially in the western states is you we've just seen this massive increase in interest and uh it's been brought up a lot by my viewers and my listeners you know that it's not necessarily the muzzleloader rules that uh you know, are the cause of this, but, you know, we need to take into account the changes in population that are happening right now and the kind of the hunting industry as it moves around and ebbs and flows. So that's very interesting to hear from, from you there in Idaho. Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to direct viewers to and any links or articles or content, anything um, you'd like to direct people towards to learn more about the organization or, or anything? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some. I guess the one thing before we go to that is just yeah. kind of hitting on that that importance of managing fish and game populations, the seasons, all that through through a scientific process. The legislature is not the place to be setting these rules. We we just had another one pop up yesterday in one of the Senate committees um, wanting to basically allow guides and outfitters if they shoot a wolf in their unit they can get what we call a trophy tag which is for either a moose a sheep or a goat and it's just it's one of the things that you look at and it it, it shouldn't it likely won't go anywhere as far as moving through and becoming law but that that's not a place to be saying saying these policies it is at the the fishing game level the paul the the commission level using science not uh not, I guess, the whims of legislatures. That can be risky. And I think we've seen that across the board, uh, not, you know, inside and outside of muzzleloading, not to get off topic, but you can you can set that precedent on one thing that might, you know, make sense to a majority or a lot of people. And you don't know how that can be used um, down the road, which can get concerning when you're talking about a finite resource, like a lot of those natural resources that we're talking about here. Exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. But but yeah, so I guess back to back to your original question, where to send people. Yeah. <laughs> um yes, yeah, so we have a few things on our on our website, um, just idahowildlife.org, and I can send them to you. We had a we put a blog post up uh I think it was last week, just kind of talking about this specific month. 
muzzle loader issue. And uh, we do have a uh, a form you can, you can fill your info in and send it in, and that will be sent in opposing the the language, the the change. So people can do that if they want. We also have on our website a an Idaho Wildlife um, called the Idaho Wildlife Build Tracker, and you can see any of the bills that have been introduced that relate to fish, wildlife, habitat, public access, anything that can can affect sportsmen in the state. And we have a brief description of what the bill is, what it could do, whether we oppose it, whether we support it. And so there, there's that there as well. And then I would just say if anybody wants to get involved with this specifically, that is a good, good place to do it. You can sign up for our emails and you can get updates on some of these things when they when they come in. You can like we will be sending out emails to folks when when this specific bill is on the agenda for the House Resources uh, Committee, and okay. people can sign to testify if they would like to testify for it. And then along with that, we I can also I can also send you the link to the the committee itself if folks want to call in. There's a phone number you can call. And you can leave a message on, you know, whether you hopefully that you oppose the bill, but I guess if you support it, ha- have at it. But uh, yeah, you can leave a message there. You can send emails to folks on the committee, and yeah, um, just say why you why you oppose it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, I think there. it's good to let people know how they can get active. I think I, I hear a lot of frustration about that when it pertains to muzzleloading rules, but I think the the more all of us are active in voicing how we feel about it. I mean, hopefully, you know, our voices are heard and that's taken into account for the process. That's how it's supposed to work. So I, I hope that it's still yeah. that way. Uh, so I, I appreciate you letting people know how to make their voice heard on this. And it's, it's tough because people feel sportsmen, especially feel that it's hard to get involved with the rulemaking process anyways, when it goes yes. through the proper channels. And then this is even one step removed from that. So it's, it's not, it's not always fun and easy and convenient to sign up to testify before the legislature, but it's two or three minutes of your day. So it's, yeah, it can have, it can have a real impact on them when, when you have a number of sportsmen showing up to, to oppose something like this. And it, I think it really uh, speaks volumes when you have a strong showing for when a bill like this pops up. Yeah. So if, if you could say anything to the, the chairman of this committee about this, what would you say? You know, if, if they were listening <laughs> now to this, not, not that they won't be listening, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, I w- what I would say is, man, that that's a tough one right off the top of my head. Pro- probably I would just look at what do we want? What do we want for the opportunities for people in the future? A lot of my job, I'm, I'm not doing this for, for me. I, I look at my kids. I want my kids to have a lot of these same opportunities that I've had. If we keep moving, moving in the direction of more and more technology, we're just going to have to restrict tag numbers. We're going to have to restrict seasons. And I would much rather have to use a more primitive weapon and still have that opportunity to get out and hunt. So, and I want my kids to have the same opportunities. I think that's great. As a father myself, I totally understand that. You know, it's, even if you're not getting anything, it's still nice to have the opportunity to go out there and, and take your muzzleloader for a walk, as I do very often, because <laughs> I don't bring a whole lot home. <laughs> <laughs> yep, totally agree. Well, th- Kyle, thank you for dealing with my off the hat, uh, off the top of my head questions. Sometimes stuff comes to mind that uh, 
I didn't write down. So I, I appreciate you answering those. And, and I think you did very well with it. No, no thank, thanks for just having me on. I, was, I appreciate it. It's, it's nice to get in here and talk about these kind of things. And sometimes the conversation, they just kind of flow and uh, you, you start talking about things that you didn't plan. And they, a lot of times it works out great. And you kind of go down little rabbit holes and never know what might pop up. Awesome. Is there anything that we might have missed? Yeah, I can't really think anything. Um, okay. Just encourage people to to check out the Wildlife Federation and sign up for some emails. If you want to stay, stay up to date on what's going on in Idaho. And if you're not Idaho, get a hold of whoever's in your state. Try to get more involved with conservation of the things. And yeah, got to be involved in the process to have a voice and uh, just encourage people to do it. Awesome. That's a message I can get behind for sure. podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. I'd like to thank Kyle for his time in discussing this. We went through a lot and there are a lot of questions just off the top of my head as we were talking. So I appreciate him being such a good sport and answering everything that I had on the spot. Uh, we'll have more information about this bill, like I said, as we reach out to other folks to get their opinions at ilovemuzzloading.com. If you're interested in any of the sources or links that Kyle talked about. We'll have those in the show notes as well as with the episode blog at ilovemuzzloading.com. I'm curious about your thoughts. Uh, these muzzleloader season changes or proposed changes seem to be coming up a lot in the Western states. Do you? Th what do you think about it? Do you think this is the encroachment of modern technology into these more old school muzzleloading seasons? Or do you think this is a result of the increased interest in big game hunting out West? Kind of like Kyle talked about there, shifting demographics, out of state tags versus in state tags. There's a whole lot going on here. And I think the, you know, based on what I'm seeing, the kind of old sleepy muzzleloader season is getting kicked up, getting a uh, dust thrown at it here, getting kind of put into the center of quite a bit 
of things that are happening between sportsmen and the population of sportsmen, state game agencies, and the hunting industry as a whole. So I'm doing my best to keep tabs on this and keep everybody as informed as I can. If there's anything like this that comes up in your state, please don't hesitate to reach out to ilovemuzzleloading at gmail.com. I love hearing about this stuff and figuring out how and why it's happening so that we can better educate muzzleloading enthusiasts in those states and spread the word when something like this is happening. So everybody on either side of an issue like this can get involved in this rulemaking and decision-making process. I think that that is part of the backbone of the United States, and I think it's important for us to get involved, especially at a local level here with changes like this and other local government issues. Getting back to interviews next week, we've got a couple more scheduled I'm really excited about. I hope that you stick around for those. Got some interesting gun builders and historians on the queue here for the rest of 2024. Once again, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.